Um, but today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Um, it's the first Sunday of every November. Um, so thousands of churches around the world and organizations come together to pray uh, for our brothers and sisters that are uh, per being persecuted because they believe in the gospel, because they believe in Jesus. Um, just as a reminder, because uh, it's not all in other countries, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a goodly, godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we are seeking to live a godly life, there's going to be pushback. And I talked to a couple people this week even that are facing persecution here from family. And, and yeah, it might be different, but it's still challenging. Um, but at, in, at the same time as here, but also other places, we're called to remember those who are in prison, those who are being mistreated for the faith, um, that they would be bold, that they would be encouraged, that they would continue to be a light for Jesus. Hebrews 13.3 says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And so our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted for their faith, and that should mourn us and, and affect us as well as we come alongside them. And so after the service today, you're going to receive an email with a couple of short videos uh, to help guide you in prayer, but also to encourage your faith, because uh, a couple of us, or a bunch of us from the young adult group on Tuesday spent the day and evening praying, discussing through things, and it, was, it really challenged my faith as well, so I hope it does the same for you too. So let's pray for the persecuted church and also our time together today now. Lord, uh, we thank you that your name is worth living for, your kingdom is worth living for. Lord, there is suffering and trial on this earth, um, both here and, and ac across the globe, Lord. Uh, we pray for each person, Lord, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, that are facing persecution, that are living in threat of persecution, um, Lord, that you would increase their faith, that you would um, embolden them as, as the church in Acts, as in the midst of persecution, they didn't ask for reprieve, they asked for boldness. So, Lord, we pray for that, that they would continue boldly proclaiming the gospel to even their persecutors, God. Um, Lord, help us as, as another part of the body to help and uphold them, uh, both in prayer, both in physical help, both in financial, whatever it might be, Lord, um, so that we can continue um, to lift their hands up when they are weak, God. Um, Lord, we pray specifically, too, for, for Bibles to get into these countries that are restricted, Lord. We know a lot of organizations are pushing for this, smuggling Bibles. Lord, we pray that you would blind um, the officials that are trying to stop them and that you would allow the written word of God to get to these people because, um, Lord, we know it is the power of God. And Lord, we thank you that we can do this freely. We can open this written power, written word of God that people are trying to restrict. Lord, so we pray that you would unleash it on our hearts, that you would convict us, encourage us, embolden us, whatever you have for us, Lord, uh, today, Lord, and that you would speak through me, and more importantly, that you'd speak directly to the hearts of everyone here, that we um, might be changed this morning and not just leaving after another Sunday, God. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, uh, in the, the Bibles under the seats, it's page 908, or 905, sorry. Yeah, 905. Um, and so we're going to be in verses 11 through 21, but verse 11 starts with therefore, so we need to understand the context. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, church hence the name 
One of the issues that is being faced within the church uh, that will come today is that they thought Paul was crazy. They thought he was going maybe too far. He had wrong motives, whatever it might be. This will come up in the passage today. Um, and then right before this passage, uh, Paul spent multiple sections uh, talking through the comparisons between this life versus the eternal life or after death. And this can be summarized really in two verses uh, that I'll read now. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so the, the suffering in this life will happen to all people, to all who seek to live a godly life, but we will also reap an even greater reward, that it's com nothing compared to the glory that is to come in God's presence. And then chapter 5, verse 2, it says, For in this tent, this body, if you will, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And again, this longing for something more than this life, that this is important to set this foundation before we get into the verses today, that this world's going to have trials, it's going to have suffering, the tents are going to have holes in it, we're gonna, we're gonna, our bodies are going to be frail at one point. But we're not living for this world. We're not living for this kingdom. We're living for the eternal kingdom. And so it's important as we go through the verse today to remember that fact that there's so much more to this life than, than just this world. And even as Greg mentioned last week, that certainly convicted me and maybe you as well, we can get distracted in this life. We can get more focused on this life rather than the kingdom of God. We're living for something bigger. And so I would encourage you even after this sermon, read chapters four in the beginning of five. Um, it definitely blessed me, even though we're not reading it today or going through it today, um, but it helps us set that foundation. And then that uh, section on our, the focus on the eternal kingdom ends in verse 10 of chapter five, and I'll read that now. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And at the end of this life for all people, um, right, before, right after death, we as believers are to be judged by God. And, and of course, we always think of like, oh, God's going to judge heaven versus hell. But we have to remember that as believers, we will also be judged. This is what's commonly known as the Bema Seat, which is not the judgment of heaven versus hell, because uh, it's not done by works. Verse 10, it ta talks about how it's whether good or evil, the things we've done. But that's not the heaven-hell judgment. This is the, the believer's judgment, that we will be judged as believers. We oftentimes forget that, and it'll be important as we go through the passage today. But in addition to believers, we know this is separate, I would say, than the great white throne in Revelations 21. It talks, 20. It talks about this, about how uh, people will be condemned to hell. There is a hell, um, contrary to popular beliefs in society today, that those who reject Jesus will stand before God, the judge, and be rejected. And so, yes, salvation is a gift of God by, by faith through grace. We need to, I'll remind us multiple times through that today. But the way we live as believers matters. And as we will consider today as well, well our motives matter. Not only our actions and what is seen on the outside, but our motives, our, our heart posture toward, in our actions do matter as well. And all those things will be judged by God, even as believers under the Bema seat of God. So let's get into the actual passage, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. 
and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And so it says, knowing the fear of the Lord. Why do we know the fear of the Lord? How do we know the fear of the Lord? And what we just read in the previous verse is important, which is why we read it, is we know that God is so holy and perfect, and he is the judge of all people, non-believers and believers. And we will all, both believer and unbeliever, stand before him one day. It's common to say as believers, well, we don't have to fear that any type of judgment were saved. It does not matter what we do in this life. Yes, that person is correct to a degree. We are saved by grace through faith. We cannot lose salvation. It is a sure promise. It's written in the Lamb's book of life. But we still fear God as believers. We will stand before his throne and we want to be counted as faithful. And it's common in the scriptures, the common phrase of well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to be saved as if by fire. In the scripture, it talks about that. We want to be, go before God confident, not only of his salvation and his pre, that we will be in his presence forever, but also that we have been faithful to God. And so Jesus himself also reiterated this point of, of fearing God. Luke 12, verse 4 through 7, I think is important to reference here. It says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has, cast authority to, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more of more value than many sparrows. And so again, it reminds us, don't fear those that oppose us in the world. Don't fear that person that's mocking you. Don't fear that family member who may think that you've lost your mind by following Jesus and having your life changed. Don't fear whatever it might be. Fear of what is to come. Fear financial things. Fear of all these things. God says don't fear those things. Fear the one thing. Fear God who is the only person that can send our body, our souls into hell. And so for the unbeliever, that is something that we need to remember, that God is the judge and he will make all things right. And there is only one way to that salvation, to that freedom from hell, to that presence of God, which is Jesus Christ. But the, this fear is different, though. This fear that it's talking about in 2 Corinthians and this fear of Luke chapter 12, which is important because it talks about don't fear those who kill the body, fear God. But then verse 7, it said, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So it's confusing. Okay, God, who, what do I fear? Do I fear or do I not fear? But God takes the time to know us, like really know us, to the point where it says he knows the hair on our head. He knows our needs. He, he feeds the, as the sparrows are fed. He feeds them as he does feed us. He gives us what we need. May not be all that we want, but it's all that we need. And so God, even though he is a fearful and terrifying God who judges, at the same time, he knows us. The fact that he knows us is incredible. The fact that he knows us more than even ourselves is mind-blowing. But even greater is that he knows us, knows you to your core, and he still loves you. Even though, as scripture says, that we are dead in our sin, even though we get lazy, we rebel, I don't know about you, I still face things, even as a believer, that, that how does he love me sometimes comes across my mind. And I, and I hope it does to you too, that he not only knows us, but he loves us in spite of who we are. 
So knowing that God laid himself down, laid his own life down for us in the greatest time of need and satisfying the wrath of God, that is worthy of worship. It's worthy of following. That is someone we fear, but not out of running away, not of, oh my goodness, he's going to kill me, like the unbeliever can and should have that feeling. Rather, in awe and wonder, we worship because he satisfied the wrath of God on Jesus. And so this fear, yes, we fear the Lord, but in a different way of closeness, of nearness, of awe, of worship. But at the same time, even as believers, even for me today, I still fear God knowing that he's going to judge me also on the Bema seat. He's not going to cast me into hell because my, my salvation is secure, as is yours if you know Jesus. But there's still this fear of the Lord. And the scripture throughout Old and New Testament talks about even for those that follow God, the fear of the Lord is still valid. It's good. It's the beginning of wisdom. But then in this scripture, it says, now as we know the fear of the Lord, as we know the, the fear of his judgment, but also the, the knowledge of his love and his knowledge of us, that we persuade others. Again, verse 11, it says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And you might think of the word persuade of, well, I can't persuade anyone. That person's hard-hearted. Or that person, I don't have good words, so I'm not even going to try. But this word persuade is, is, I think, kind of taken out of context. If you look at the original language and definition of the word and other usages, it really means to make friends of, to gain favor, to seek to win a person. It's not saying that you have to reason someone to the kingdom of God, because that's impossible. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Yes, it has its place that we should know how to answer things. The scripture has the answers um, to really every question in life. And I can tell you going out in the streets, there's really no topic or issue that is not covered through the scripture. So there's a place for that. But this specifically, this persuasion is is a desire. It's, it's a focus on us seeking to win another person with passion and compassion. And so this is not for only those that go to these seminaries and know all the answers to apologetics. This is for every single person. Every single believer is called to knowing the fear of the Lord, the judgment of the believer and non-believer, we persuade others. And this is really two categories similar to the judgment is we persuade the non-believer. We seek to win them. And so knowing that God is the judge of all people and he has the authority of heaven versus hell, we win that person to Christ. We share the good news that we know that that fear can be lifted and we can be transferred into a place of peace with God, that we can be made right before God, that we are no longer under condemnation or guilt, but we have freedom and love. And so we persuade people with that. But at the same time, and I think this is missed sometimes, is we also persuade the believer. So knowing that God is to be feared even by believers in the judgment seat, the Bema seat for Christians, we will do whatever it takes to disciple that person to deeper knowledge and growth in Jesus. And oftentimes we're like, oh, they're saved, they're good, they can just ride it out to eternity. But that's not the gospel, as we'll talk about later. So our goal is knowing the fear of God, we encourage we are compassionately and passionately pursue people to know God more to follow him more to obey him more to worship him more and so maybe God has not called you or given you a lot of opportunities to share the gospel but you know other believers go encourage them if you've been walking with the Lord find someone who's younger or even the same age it doesn't matter 
Find them and read the Bible with them. Teach them what God has taught you because we know the fear of the Lord. So that's the, the motivation here it's talking about is knowing the fear of the Lord, both for the believer and unbeliever. We then go persuade others. We then go teach of God. We win favor. We win them over to further and deepen their walk with God. So let's ask ourselves, do we know the fear of the Lord? Have we contemplated his holiness? What about his judgment seat, both for the non-believers and the believers? If you do know that fear of the Lord, because I know some of you do, the natural result is that you will be on mission to persuade others to consider Jesus deeper. Are you praying for and pursuing your non-believing friends and family? Are you sharing with people about Jesus? Even if you do not interact with as many non-believers as I mentioned before, are you encouraging other believers to go deeper in Christ, knowing that even as believers we'll stand before the throne? Not only us, we want others to be counted as faithful to God. And so the fear of the Lord drives us towards persuading others, to pursuing others. And there's a deeper motivation than fear, as we'll discuss, but a motivation of the fear of the Lord is going to grow our faith and obedience and will compel us to pursue others, both for our salvation and also growth in the Lord. And verse 11 goes on. It says, uh, what, we are is known, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. And as mentioned before, the Corinthians thought Paul was a bit crazy, or even thought that he was going too far, and they were talking bad about him, gossip, etc. However, Paul's saying here that God knows his actions. God, Paul's conscience is clear. Our, our, he, God knows our motives, our hearts, and that's all that matters. He doesn't need, Paul doesn't need to boast or defend himself. We don't either. Let God judge, and as Paul's doing, spend your time obeying God, obeying the scripture, pursuing others so that they might know Christ or know him more deeply. And I think that's an encouragement to us is don't worry about what other people's thoughts are. Um, let God be the judge. But at the same time, it says that I hope it is also known to our conscience. And this has just got me thinking that a lot of times other people may not be aligned with what God sees in us. But at the same time, God's view of even ourselves can differ than what we think. Um, for example, if you feel really down sometimes and feel like you just need to earn back God's favor or just feel depressed due to surrounding circumstances, remind yourself, remind your conscience, if you will, what God has to say about you and your surrounding situation. It's important to be centered on Jesus. I know for me, sometimes I just get depressed and sad, whether it be something someone says or a surrounding situation or sometimes for no reason. And so it shows that our conscience, our minds, sometimes are off the truths of God. And so as an encouragement to each of you, whether it be going through a trial, a suffering, persecution, or even just a rough day, let God define who you are and how you are doing today. Center yourself back on God, whether you're too prideful, too humble, center it back on God, and he will do it in a gentle, loving, and truthful manner. And so Paul is giving them over to the Lord in the sense, but he's yearning for them to understand too Look, look at what God is saying. God is saying that this is good, what he's doing, this message that he is sharing. So let's go on, verses 12 through 15. I'll read it now. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you the cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And you look at this, and this might be kind of strange, especially as to what I said. He just got done saying that God is the one who knows who we are, the one who judge. We don't have to boast. But then he's saying all these things about boasting. But look at this contrast. Paul has shared with the Corinthians and, the, and other churches very openly about his struggles, both in persecution and even personally. He is saying, I'm giving something to boast about in this suffering and trial-filled life he was living because the people of the church of Corinth were rather boasting in the ministry leaders that had a comfortable and seemingly successful outside appearance. And Paul even himself says, and, and in the scripture that Greg read, Paul's not coming with fancy speech. He's not bringing down the house with applause. A lot of times he's getting run out, run out of town. And so looking at Paul's ministry, you might say, well, this guy goes a little too crazy. He gets stoned every city he goes in. So this, this gossiping, this idea of, well, I'm going to follow this guy who's just kind of peaceful and doesn't rattle the cages, if you will. But Paul is saying, look, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look necessarily at only the people that have, from the outside, successful ministries as the, the experts, if you will. And so he's not saying to brag about how great he is, but rather he's saying this life of suffering, the life of trials, radical obedience and worship and, and sharing the gospel, that's what's to be followed. That is what should be replicated and honored. And we remember that God does not judge based on outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so in that case, um, David was this young, young boy, didn't look anything impressive compared to his older brothers ready for battle, but the Lord chose him because his heart was right. And so for all intents and purposes, it was the foolish decision that was made, but God is so much wiser than us. And so as as an application to us, there certainly can be a lot of value in ministries that are successful. I'm very grateful for the apps of these larger ministries, the sermons and the content. It's, it's awesome. It's great. So I'm not saying don't listen to anyone that is successful from the outside. However, it is important to be careful as well. Um, we've seen people fall from the, the, the pedestal. Um, so be careful. But I would say what may even be more effective than, say, finding the biggest ministries that are successful is find the people, find the person, find even the groups that may not be as more popular, but who have been through the trials, who've been through the deepening of their walk through the fire, who have been refined like gold and silver. So not only find those people, but also be those people. And what if you were like the Paul, one who seeks radical obedience and embraces the trials that you're going through by asking God to teach and grow us through those times? That's going to be more effective than just listening to the latest bestseller, is let God teach you, let God grow you through the suffering, through the trials. From James, we know that is how God grows us oftentimes. And so be careful with just looking at the most successful organization, find the people, the groups, and be one yourself that embraces the suffering, embraces the obedience of scripture, um, and is grown by God's spirit. 
And just as a, a real life example, I was talking to a guy on, a couple weeks ago on the phone. He's in his 70s. I haven't talked to him in like 10 years. I knew he loved Jesus. And, and like back then, it was like, oh, he's a cool guy. Uh, we we're going to do an event together. But he was sharing his heart on the phone how he, he's had cancer for the last two years and he almost died. So it was, it was far along. I don't know exactly what stage, but he's still living. But he was saying what stood out to me, how thankful he was for cancer. And he said he had never had more opportunities in the last two years in his entire life to empathize with others, to share the hope of Jesus. He said his reliance on God has only increased. His prayer life just ballooned. And so he's not in the news anywhere. He's not preaching anywhere. He's, he's serving at a church, but nothing like from the front, if you will. But man, that was so encouraging to me. And it grew me just in listening to his testimony. Um, so I would encourage all of us to be someone who is genuine and been through those fires, but also find people that you can model your life after um, in the day-to-day. Because most of the time, we're not going to f- meet the guy who's on the app. I mean, maybe that'd be cool. But find people that are living, the, living with the Lord and, and through the fire today, and the Lord will grow. And Jesus, again, I, I wanted to just reiterate, Jesus also echoed this point too. So it's not just Samuel that's mentioned. John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with judge, right judgment. And ultimately, God is the judge. But we, again, have to realize we don't have to look at the outward appearance. Um, and, and this passage in John chapter 7, you can read it later, but it was in reference to the Jewish people actually thinking that he was demon-possessed. And so clearly people thought Jesus was a lunatic, when he was healing people and preaching. But he says, be careful because they, they don't know what's inside. And so we don't live for other people's approval, especially since as believers, the outside may not be as attractive to the world, uh, may not be attractive. Um, and this is a good segue into verse 15 in 2 Corinthians. So let's read that verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And so the people outside of the church thought that Paul was crazy, which is to be expected because we as believers know we are living for a different kingdom. So they might think it's a waste or whatever. And this actually includes Festus uh, in Acts. Um, we learned about when we were going through that, that he literally said, like, Paul is crazy <laughs> to his face. They may have thought that, but in addition to the outside world, which we kind of expect, we also have people within the church think that oftentimes we're going a little too far that maybe Paul should tone it down a little. Maybe don't cause a, 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 a stoning this time, Paul. Like, give it a chill. Maybe you can take a break or I don't, you don't have to be that intense, Paul. Just hold back a little bit. And Paul was in good company when, he, when it says that he was beside ourselves. Um, Mark chapter 3, 21, again referencing Jesus, it says, when his family, Jesus' family, heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so we think Jesus, like, oh, he was well-loved, especially those outside of Christianity, like, yeah, Jesus was just like a hippie and a good guy. But even his own family think he was in, thought he was a nut job. And so Paul was beside himself that, like, people might think he's crazy. Jesus, it, it, some people, as I mentioned before, even thought he was demon-possessed. They thought he was crazy, but what were Paul and Jesus doing? They were just simply obeying the Father. They were bo- obeying the Scriptures, And so look, our goal is not to be so out there that everyone thinks we are crazy. Some people hunt for persecution, hunt for 
people thinking that you're like a Jesus freak or whatever. You don't have to look for it. Just follow the Bible. Follow Jesus. Follow what Jesus did. Follow what the scripture says. And those things will come. Our goal is radical worship towards God. Our goal is fear of God, obedience to God, love and pursuit of others, as we talked about before. If people think we're crazy for loving Jesus and for loving them, then it is what it is because you're being faithful. And so it's okay if people think you're crazy. And a lot of times it happens with family members um, that people think you're going too far. Of Like, why don't you just take a break? Like, no, this is what's compelling me to do something. This is, in my heart, it's like, uh, I think in Ezekiel, it talks about, like, my bones are crying out that I need to go share the gospel. I need to read the Bible. I need to wake up to pray. So don't let people deter you from obedience. And on this motivation of why we do this, let's go to the next verse. Verse 14 and 15, it says this. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so this word controls, some of your versions may have compel, uh, constrain. If you look at the original definition, I think it's a beautiful picture. It's to hold together. It's to press together on every side, to constrain it, to keep it in, if you will. Uh, another analogy that's used in the definition is it's it's forces that are moving a boat to go through a strait, like a narrow channel. And that's a beautiful picture with the boat, because as believers, we're still in the sanctifying process. We get off track sometimes. But the love of Christ pushes us from every side to get through that narrow water channel, that narrow strait. The love of God constrains us from going too far off the deep end. The, the love of Christ constrains us from being lazy and to get us, keep us moving, to push us even when we have no strength. The love of Christ is the thing that controls, compels, constrains. It motivates us. So if it were not for the love of Christ, where would we be? We'd be shipwrecked. We'd be lost at sea. And so what is driving and motivating our actions? What drives us to radical worship and obedience, to live for him, to persuade others? And what is keeping you from going rogue, if you will, or crashing the boat into land and instead bringing you down the narrow strait, the path that God has for you? As Paul said, it's the love of Christ. Jesus did not just say he loved us, because honestly, as we know from human experience, words can be cheap. But he exemplified it by coming to the earth as a man to be ridiculed and killed by mankind, the ones he actually came to save, and bore and put on the wrath of God on himself, on your behalf, on our behalf. And there's no greater love, and it is backed up by action. It's solidified. This love of Christ is a motivator. It should drive us to obedience, drive us to worship. If Paul was doing things for other people's approval, he would have stopped a long time ago. Because no not many people approved of him, even within the church. Did he just do it to look Christian in the culture, check the box? No, because the culture wasn't even Christian. He was doing it because the love of God compelled him to keep going, to keep moving when he had no strength, to keep obeying to radical worship, regardless of even the discouragement from some believers. God, God's love for Paul and for mankind compelled him, constrained him, motivated him to do that. So why do you follow Jesus? Why do you share with others? 
about Jesus or encourage other believers? What keeps you from going back to that sinful habit or living the same way as you did before? Is it just so your husband or wife can approve of you? So it's like, okay, I got to go to church now. Is it just so your family can get off your back? Is it just so that you can look good in front of other people and boast, boost, boast about your status? And look, I've been guilty of these things too. I grew up going to church and I just did the whole Christian thing so my family would not be against me. I've been guilty of just trying to go to more Bible studies to make up for wrongdoings that I've done even in my Christian walk. But let me tell you, it's freeing and effective, more effective to be controlled and compelled and constrained by the love of Christ rather than any other motivation. And it goes on, what do you, and we can ask the question, what do you mean by the love of Christ? What does that look like? And Paul explains this again in verse 14 and 15. Uh, I'll read it again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One has died for all, therefore all have died. The first foundation here that we have to know is that all have died or are dead. This is not necessarily the physical death, but rather the death and our separation from God. Ephesians 2 goes into that, that we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. That there is no saving you. There's no trying to like just give you some more food to get by. Like you are completely dead with no life in you. If you think you are even slightly good enough to get to God, be reminded that you are dead in your sins. And I was as well. Do not try to soften sin because it is normal for everyone. That oftentimes happens within the church even. That, well, everyone struggles with that, so it's okay. No, it's not okay because it separates us from God. And God can give life to even the deadness in us. And the love of Christ is perfectly shown by his death and his resurrection. And this verse is really the gospel. And there's another verse later that is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the love exemplified of Jesus. That you and I were at one time rejected by God and dead in our sins, deserving eternal hell. Jesus chose to come down to rescue us. Some of you in this room may need to be reminded that you were rescued and did not earn it. Maybe you're struggling with this workspace mentality of you need to just be better. You can't. You need Jesus to give you life, even as believers. And some of you may still need rescuing. You may still be dead. You may still feel separated from God. And God is here to rescue you. He died for all people. So regardless of your past, meaning that all have the opportunity to receive this boundless and eternal gift of life. He not only died, but rose again, putting his stamp that there is no sin, no sin too great for him. Every sin he died for. So there's nothing outside of his grace. But notice what this act of love and this message of good news that is free for all, a free gift what it calls us to. It says that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So the gospel is so, the good news, the message of salvation of Jesus is so much more than checking off a box of Christian activities. It's more than just saying a prayer and then saying, wow, I'm free. I'm good. I'm re ready to just live out my days. It's so much more than that. What the gospel, the good news calls us to is to live a life that is not focused on ourselves, our needs, and our desires. How do we do that? Because <laughs> that's our natural in inclinations. How can we get that motivation to not live for ourselves, but rather to live for God, to live for others? And the only thing I'm convinced that can motivate us, that can drive us to live in such a way is the love of Christ that we need to come back to 
time and time and time again. The way that Jesus gave up his throne temporarily to live on this earth, to be ridiculed and then dying on our behalf, taking the full wrath of God on himself. So let me ask you again, what motivates you? What drives you? What constrains you? What holds you together? What pushes you towards the narrow path? Is it your family? That's an honorable motivation because you should love your family well, but it will fall short. Your family might get on your nerves. Is it gathering up as many possessions on the earth? Money and materials, those things are going to burn and not take, be taken to heaven. Is it your social status? You're always going to want more, and I'm sure someone will disappoint. Is what's driving you just having as much pleasure and fun on this earth? This earth? That, again, will be empty in the end. So any motivation outside of the love of Christ will not be sufficient. You will fall short. You will be miserable. But the love of Christ, that he died for us in our place, taking the wrath of God upon himself rather than us, should motivate us to all of these things, to obedience, to worship, to fearing him. Spend time with him. Talk with him. He will speak to you as well. And did you know he still speaks? Would you agree? Both through the scripture and through his spirit, he speaks to us. And so he'll give you an an extra dose of motivation. Because I know for me, even in the past months, there's been times where I'm not motivated to love, to do whatever. And the Lord has been every time when I go to him, sometimes it's slow to go to him. But when I go to him, he's so faithful to speaking exactly what we need. And so the love of God constrains, compels, motivates us. And this, this verse is really important. 1 John chapter 4, 17 through 19 says this. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And yes, there is an, we are called to have fear of God. That is an an aspect of the motivation is we want people to experience the love of God. We don't want them to experience hell. We want people to be counted as faithful. We don't want them to waste their lives as a Christian. But the deepest motivation, the, the grounding foundation of our motivation should be love. Perfect love casts out fear. And so the love of Christ needs to be meditated on day in and day out, every single day as a believer. We, we get so far into doing, doing, doing. We get so far into doing it ourselves, into the, the rituals of life, the traditions of the Christian walk. But we need to be centered in the foundation of the motivation of love of Christ, that it would truly compel, constrain us and control us. So Jesus has shown us love. How will we respond? What will be our motivation as a believer? It should be the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.16, let's go on to the next verse. It says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So because of the love of Christ shown in the gospel message of Jesus dying and rising again, We therefore regard no one according to the flesh. And this certainly could be in reference to Paul, even reminiscing how he remembered Christ according to the flesh. Um, It says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, Paul was studying um, in the religious uh, rulers, studying the Old Testament, all these things, but he didn't consider Christ as the Messiah. 
And so this could be him regarding just how he regarded Christ prior to his salvation. He, re- he rejected Jesus. And we also, in our flesh, I would say, similar to Paul, before Christ's days, regarded Christ, either rejected him like Paul did, or we regard Christ flippantly. But no longer, because of the love of Christ compelling us, because of the, what Jesus has done for us, we no longer regard Christ as just another person, a, a, just a prophet, or just something like that. We regard him thus no longer. We regard him as the king of kings, the one who will be ascended on the throne, who will judge one day. And we have been regenerated, saved, and we see Jesus for who he is. And so even as a Christian, how would you answer the question of who do you think Jesus is? And I would say, talk to your friends, talk to your family. How would you describe Jesus? It's amazing. People on the street I talk to, even believers, I ask them just the simple question, who do you think Jesus is? And how misaligned sometimes our, our answers to that question is even as believers. But we need to get it right. Who is Jesus? We regard him no longer, according to the flesh, as just another person, but as the king of kings. And then verse 17, it goes on. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so from your life of sin or disbelief that God forgave you and saved you from, he makes you a whole new creation. He does not do a patch job and just make you a little kinder or a little more humble. If he did a true work in you, and not you just playing the part, because some people say they're Christians and just disregard God, but if he did a true work in you, God will do a complete overhaul in which your old habits will not be there anymore. They will try to creep in, of course. You're going to have struggles. But God comes in and gives you victory as you allow him to give victory. And so we need to not let the devil or others accuse us of our past. If it has been forgiven, we are free from that condemnation. And this is good news that you are a new creation, that you are not defined by your old life, but you are defined by what God says about you, that you are his son and daughter. And so we should relish in this fact that we are a new creation made by God. And oftentimes as believers, we can have that spiritual pride, and Paul knows that, I think. And it goes on, verse 18 and 19, and says this, All this is from God, and who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So you might be going around like, ooh, I'm a, I'm a new creation. I'm doing pretty good right now. But Paul's reminding right away, all this is from God. Every good thing that you have is from God. And if you ever think that you're the best Christian in the whole world and that you must have done something right, Paul reminds us that, yes, something was done right and it was done by God. So spiritual pride can creep in. Beware of that. And we can start thinking that, well, at least I'm not that person or that Christian or I'm not doing that. Be careful. Remember that all this is from God, so praise him rather than pointing. And, but how did this work of God start? As it says in verse 18, it says that God reconciled, uh, Christ reconciled us. It's going to be used a few times. So what is that? Re- reconcile is to restore friendly relations. Um, the original word is actually to exchange as coins for equal value. So it's, it's, it's a transaction. At the same time, it's relational. And so this is interesting then. What was Jesus' motivation for his coming, his death, and resurrection? It was his love, as we talked about. God is love. He's the embodiment of it. His ultimate desire, though, 
from that love is that we would be restored to a relationship with him that we broke. God didn't break it. God didn't break the earth or whatever. We broke it. And so that, re- that reconciliation, going back to the transaction, even though it's motivated by love, there's a cost to it. And that cost was his life, was his separation from the Father. And so he exchanged his life for ours. He lays down his so that we can live again. And thanks be to God, the grave could not hold him down so that we can be 100% confident that in the same way, we will not be held down either if we come to Jesus. We will not be pushed away from God, but rather he is welcoming us in open arms. He restored the relationship between us and God. So the motivation was love. The result was reconciliation. In response to being brought back in relationship with God through Jesus, though, it's not that we just relish in it and then just, okay, I'm just going to look at the sky and wait for Jesus' return. Out of the motivation of the love of Christ, we are actually called to do the same act of reconciliation. And so remember verse 15, that we're no longer living for ourselves, but for God, but for Jesus. What does that look like? Paul says right here, you are called, motivated by the love of Christ, to be reconcilers as well. Sacrificing what we could have so that others can be in right relationship with God. Literally following Jesus' exact motive and actions, just in today's world. Following Jesus is not complex, it's hard, but it's pretty simple. We just do as Jesus did. And so we do not count, as it says here, others' sins against them, but rather point them to Jesus for forgiveness and call them to sin no more. Again, just like Jesus did, we long for all people to be reconciled to God as we were. He entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. He entrusted us with this gospel message, which says that Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life, died for us, our sins, and the wrath of God, and then he rose again, showing that he, we all can be forgiven and can have life. And yes, we have to act according to our calling and according to the new creation that God made us, but we also have to use words. Romans 10, 17, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's be faithful with the commands and responsibility God has given us. We will be held accountable. Let's move on this as a task, as this task of reconciliation is fleshed out a little bit in the next couple verses as we end our time. It says this in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we are ambassadors of Christ. And remember, it says, therefore. So this ministry of reconciliation, where we go with the motivation of love to reconcile people, both non-believers and believers too, to be in a deeper and right relationship with God. That's our, our goal, but it's motivated by love. And he explains this task of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation as this concept of ambassadors. And we could spend an entire sermon just on this concept, But it's a reminder, this idea of ambassadors, that this is not our home. Again, going back to the context, we're on foreign land right now. And I'm thankful to live in this country, but it's still not my home. And I hope it's not for you either. Our home is in God's kingdom. God has given us a privilege, though, while we are here to represent his name and his kingdom here. We should not take this privilege lightly. So what do ambassadors do? They're supposed to represent the kingdom 
in action, so they're, they're going and doing things, they're advocating on the sending country, if you will, the sending kingdom. They're doing stuff. They're not just sitting in their chair. But they're, in addition to acting on things, they're using words. Think of all the meetings, the media interviews, that they're communicating the agenda, the message of the sending country. They're supposed to communicate that message so that other may know about that sending country and what their goals are, their desires are. And here it says, as believers, that God makes his appeal through us as ambassadors. Some translations, translations say, instead of make an appeal, to plead. So it shows us to the extent of our passion and compassion to persuade others, going back to that verse. That it's not just, hey, take it or leave it, here's God. No, it's we're going to do whatever it takes that they might know Jesus, and for the believer that might be living a compromised life, that they would grow deeper in God. We're going to plead with them that they might know the message of the good news of the gospel. And so the question here is then, are you pleading with other believers to be reconciled to God? Are you pleading with them to go deeper in Christ, to know him, to worship and obey him more? Are you pleading for those that are under the wrath of God that they might be delivered and rescued? If people meet you, they should see that they met a person representing a foreign entity. They are not like this world. They should see us not like this world, that something's different. We don't have to try to be different, so we have to be careful of that. Of like, I'm just going to be so crazy that people see me. No, just follow the Bible, follow Jesus' commands, and people will notice that something's different. That in itself will be radical enough. And so we as believers in this ministry of reconciliation motivated by love, we are doing the work of an ambassador wherever God has placed us today. This doesn't mean that you have to go to a physical other country than America to do this. You can be an ambassador of Christ in your family. Are you teaching your kids the love of Christ and to follow and to worship him? Are you, te are you teaching your coworkers and pleading with your coworkers that they might know Christ? Are you pleading with the people that you meet in your day-to-day -day activities, the people that you meet at the store or the gas station or, or at uh, a hobby that you do? Are you pleading with them? Are you using the, your opportunity as an ambassador to communicate the message of God? And I love how this chapter ends, with us, uh, ends us with our final verse of the day, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news and I love how Paul really multiple times through this passage reiterates the good news of the gospel through Jesus. This is the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus' motivation was love and he caused reconciliation by paying for, his, for the penalty that we deserve. There is no other way to satisfy both God's justice and his love than to come to earth, live as we lived, except perfectly, and then take our sins upon him. And Jesus took all of the sins of mankind, including your sin, including my sin, on himself. And as God the Father poured out his wrath and vengeance on his son, then as we believe in Jesus, we are declared righteous. And so you don't have to live a good week to then be declared righteous of God, I got to put myself together. I got to fix this area of my life and then I'll come to you. I've heard that time and time again, but we can come right to Jesus and it is the great exchange 
of us putting our sin upon Jesus and, and allowing God to forgive us. And in return, Jesus is declaring us in a financial transaction, if you will, the analogy of he is declaring you righteous forevermore. That one day before the throne of God, you can be standing there and saying, you are righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice. What an exchange. And you can be declared righteous and faultless by the perfect and holy judge today. And so, yes, there is fear of God that is real, but perfect love casts out fear. And what greater love is, there is than Jesus? And so first, as Paul said, even in the passage, I plead with each of you, be reconciled to God. Jesus did the action, but you need to humble yourself to say that you want to turn from your wickedness, rebellion, disbelief, and deadness in your heart into the loving embrace of Jesus. He will forgive you and work everything out. So you might have questions. He will work everything out, I can guarantee you. He's still working things out with me. But he will forgive you if you just come to him. And also, if you've been slack in your walk with God, if you've failed to represent him well, failed to, failed to be an ambassador for Christ in your life, failed to take up the command of the ministry of reconciliation, you can also be forgiven, be reconciled to him. Even as believers, we are called to ask for forgiveness, to repent. It, also, if you've had the wrong motivation, maybe your actions are good, but your motivation is wrong. Or maybe even you had the wrong motivation to come here this morning. Any of these things, come to Jesus, pray to him in your own words, ask for forgiveness. He is gentle and so gracious and longing to hear from you. He will make you a new creation today, as it says in the scripture. He will center you on him again and remind you of his promises towards him. And so for those who have been growing in the fear of the Lord, growing in love with him, seeking to share the gospel with others and disciple other believers, seeking to represent him well, keep going. Because I know a lot of, not, not all of you are in the wrong motivation or things like that. A lot of you are doing an awesome job. Praise the Lord. But be encouraged because trials and sufferings are going to come if they're not here already. The Lord will strengthen you today and he will pour out his blessing, his presence, and we will be with him one day soon in all of his glory. And so if you're going through it, if you're really trying to have the right motivation, doing all these things with the motivation and the obedience to God, it's going to be hard, but remember the eternal life. Remember that heavenly dwelling that God is giving us. Remember the glory that outweighs the suffering. And so this concept of being an ambassador, of the messenger of reconciliation, this mouthpiece, this representative in a foreign land, this is hard, especially when we can be distracted, we can be rebellious, we can be lazy, whatever it might be. If you're longing to represent God more faithfully, both in right motivation and right action this week, I'm going to ask you to do something. Just stand up um, to, so that we can pray for you, so that I can pray for you. If you this week want to be a, a motive, uh, an ambassador for Christ, if you want to be um, a representative in, with, of him to reconcile others to God. Could you stand up so I can pray for you? It is hard. The Lord knows that it's hard too. The Lord knows that our flesh is weak. Paul even says it himself that his flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong. And the spirit is strong within you if you trust in him. And so I pray um, that all of us would be ambassadors. And I didn't even realize a lot of you are standing. So praise the Lord. And just think if each of one of us standing here were actually an ambassador for Christ 
actually obeying God by sharing this reconciliation, this gospel message of God to our coworkers, to our friends, to our families, the Lord is going to do amazing things. The problem is, oftentimes, we just kind of cruise through life. We dabble in things we shouldn't. And so I'm encouraged to know that so many people want to follow Jesus, want to be a representative of God. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example of love, radical love by leaving your throne to come to this life, to come to this world, be ridiculed, to be beaten when you are perfect and a holy God that is worthy worthy to be worshipped. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would recognize your love and that we would be controlled and compelled and motivated by your love. Lord, I pray for anyone here that the motivation might not be there, that they've just got caught in doing the traditions of Christian people. And I pray that they would be a radical motivator of love and that they would spend time in your presence. Lord, I pray as they use words to communicate the gospel to their friends, to their coworkers, that you would equip them with exactly what they need, with the boldness that you provide. Lord, I also pray for those that are discipling other believers that might not be truly walking with you, might be living a compromised life, that you would give them boldness to confront, but also to encourage God. I pray that you, as spirit, would fall on these people, within these people, that they might feel encouraged and empowered by, by you yourself, God. Lord, thank you that you are within us, that you are not just in certain people or certain people groups, certain measures of faith, but Lord, just a simple faith of a mustard seed can move mountains, Lord. And we trust you that you will change us first and that you will change the world by this gospel message, Lord. Father, we are humbled that we are even offered this ambassadorship. We are offered this ministry, and we pray that you would um, glorify your name from it, Lord, that we, our name would not be known. Calvary Chapel, Mercer County would not, the name would not be known, but the name of Jesus would be named throughout the ends of the earth, God. We trust you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.